Hello traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Definitive, the go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Definitive's head of America's oil analysts. We're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. Today, we're turning our focus to missed opportunities, poorly executed strategies, and just overall failure of imagination as it relates to the oil business. Now, Jim, tell our listeners about failures of imagination and about fine footwear. <laughs> failure of imagination is a phrase first coined by Frank Borman after the 1967 disastrous NASA ground test that killed three astronauts. When this phrase was used again in the 9-11 Commission report, a new way of thinking finally matured to a point where business leaders built it into their process. Edward de Bono's work on lateral thinking made it from academia to the business world. However, not everyone's been paying attention. Before I jump into the customary regions, I'd like to address a geography, geography free group, the New Green Dealers. There are some very promising technologies coming out of this initiative. However, going the process alone is expensive, slow, and unnecessary. Case in point, offshore power generation via wind holds a lot of potential for future development, but developing assets in this harsh marine environment has many untold swells. Who has the decades of experience building in this environment? Hmm, the industry the new green dealers criticize the most. One more point before I move on. Ridding the air of CO2 is the entire point of the New Green Deal, at least in theory. I ask, who has decades of experience with carbon sequester? All right, moving on. Canada is locked in a east-west cultural divide. The Berludis versus Lucchese struggle. That's top-of-the-line Italian footwear loafers versus wealthy oilman boots. Amongst other issues, this struggle has caused the national governing east side to not objectively consider opportunities that would drive substantial revenue for the great white north. Let's consider one point with two different avenues. The point being building access so Canada's rich natural resources can be exported to the world. This extends well beyond energy, but the first point to touch on is oil. Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is alleviating some of this. Let's look at an analysis from the first week of November 2020 of alternatives for the grade Cold Lake delivered into PetroChina's Zhajiang refinery in far south China. Using refinitive prices and shipping rates, I could get this grade to this refinery for about $1.85 a barrel under WTI prompt month. Looking at two alternative grades, Basra Heavy gets delivered to Zhajiang at $7.15 over WTI. Colombian Castilla lands at $9.75 a barrel over WTI. Cold Lake Crude delivered to Zhajiang has a $9 a barrel advantage over two of its alternative grades. It's unlikely that Canada will capture all the premium, but they should be able to capture a huge amount if and only if Ottawa can free their collective minds and allow their imagination to work. Along that same track, 
is the Kitimat Clean Refinery proposal in Kitimat, British Columbia. The proposal is to build a 400,000 barrel a day refinery with state-of-the-art green and clean energy technology, creating a path to export Canada's state-of-the-art ESG practices. If that isn't enough, consider this. Kitimat Clean would be the lowest cost of production refinery in the Pacific or Indian Oceans. Does that sink in? Cheaper than the Goliath Yamnagar refinery in India. Cheaper than Chinese and South Korean monolithic refineries that now dominate the refined product distribution in the Pacific. Kitimat Clean would change the flow of refined products of the U.S. West Coast. Being able to supply gasoline and diesel from Seattle down to Los Angeles cheaper than local refineries can produce products. And if that isn't enough, this project would create about 6,000 construction jobs and about 2,000 permanent jobs in rural British Columbia. If and only if Ottawa can free their collective minds and allow their imagination to work. Okay, since you've started with the U.S. West Coast, go ahead and tell us about the U.S. So I submit the energy issue in the U.S. is not a failure of imagination, but a failure of emancipation. What? Dogberry, is that you? Only the English spit majors understand that joke. Dogberry is the chief of the watch in Messina in Shakespeare's play Much Ado About Nothing. He's pompous, his no self-awareness of his surroundings, yet he is expert in the procedures of governing. Sound vaguely familiar? Dogberry also has a habit of using malapropisms. A malapropism is when a similar sounding word gets inflected into a sentence, often with conical results. Perhaps you have heard a few I flipped in. Why do I bring this up? In spite of Dogberry's total incontinence, the villains are captured, coincidental to anything Dogberry does, and the town of Messina goes on as it should. Such is the case with the spasmatic, uh, sporadic, energy policy in the last 20 years. For the most part, energy stayed under the radar for both hydrocarbon and green production. Of President Bush's 291 executive orders, Six involved energy. Four had to do with energy efficiency and environmental stewardship for both hydrocarbon and green generation. One was about creating public information for supply of distribution and use. And another was to expedite energy-related project permitting. Read, correct the perversions of the 1972 Clean Waters Act. Unless, of course, you think a drainage ditch temporarily full of rainwater really is a body of water that a pipeline or electrical wire can't traverse 40 feet under the ground. President Obama made 276 executive orders and only three involved energy. One was about clean energy, energy security, and safeguarding the environment. One was about accelerating investment in energy efficiency. That's a podcast for another time. And the last one was really preparing the assistance infrastructure for damaging acts like hurricanes and wildfires. Here's where it starts to get contentious and ironic. 
in 2015, the Obama era, which really he had nothing to do with, the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers created a regulation that attempted to clarify two Bush-era regulations trying to clarify the 1972 Clean Water Act. The waters of the United States rule only muddied the waters. This should have been governed by the Administrative Policy Act. Hang with me, I'll be back to that one. The Trump administration re reviewed that rule with Executive Order 13778, subsequently suspended and repealed it. President Trump made 195 executive orders, and five had to do with energy. It was the way this was done, and Executive Order 13766, that drew the ire of the environmental folks. Executive Order 13766 granted presidential, presidential permit for Keystone XL. That was about four years ago. It's been litigated ever since. I suspect the environmental side knows that they will eventually lose this, but the legal speed bump served its purpose. What's really holding up the show in the KXL example is challenges citing the Administrative Policy Act of 1946. This act is literally the red tape that bogs down government agencies. It was created by a Democratic Congress in 1945 signed by President Truman in 1946, because Congress did not want governmental agencies creating law via regulation. Ironically, the current challenges are now forcing the courts into the same quagmire, which, of course, they don't like, because anything they do, the courts know will be appealed and or tested. The point of all this? If the dogberries on both sides will simply move on to their next blood sport and let the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers apply the current set of protective laws on the books, both the pipeline and the electrical transmission industries can move forward. Adios, vamos a Mexico. <laughs> uh, throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to meet Mexican leaders with PhDs from UCLA, the University of Chicago, and engineers of just about every discipline. Certainly Mexico has the capacity, but can they free their imagination enough to consider this one point? Government is a poor management company, but in a position to manage companies. Okay. This is a leap of faith, but let Pemex be just an oil company and not the piggy bank of one third of the Mexican government, government revenue. Even better yet, Break Pemex into component companies, a la Standard Oil of 110 years ago. Let there be multiple E&P companies, multiple pipeline companies, multiple refining companies, multiple distribution companies, and let each port seek to promote its own self-interest. With this one stroke of a legislative pen, more natural resources will be developed, more Mexicans will be employed, and more revenue into the government coffers. Also. This crazy thing happens when individual corporate ownership happens and not government. Everything is maintained better and policed better because it becomes the lifeblood of the group's future. Mexico made a first step in 2013, and there were some successes with this move to be sure, allowing in foreign distributors and foreign partners for production to name two. The failure of imagination that destroyed this advance 
was the lack of checks and balances to limit the debilitating effects of corruption and the fear of letting go of the golden goose. This is a complex system, but let's look at a successful Mexican analog story. In 1990, the Mexican government sold its national telephone company to a group of investors led by Carlos Slim Helu, France Telecom, and Southwestern Bell. Would this alone preclude corruption? Not exactly. But France Telecom, and certainly Southwestern Bell, have some pretty strict antitrust laws they must adhere to, even in dealings in foreign countries. But that, that's just the tip of this iceberg. With the bowering power of these two heavyweights, the new Telmax started developing fiber cable lines and internet service. Oh yeah, and the cell phone service company called Radio Mobile Dipsa, RMD. RMD was so small, it didn't even register as a competitor to the company that owned the Mexican cell phone market, Lusa Cell. In 1995, the Mexican peso crisis was a critical turning point. Lusa Cell was saddled with debt, corporate bloat, and a limiting mindset. Telmax, on the other hand, had the experience of French and American businessmen who knew how to accumulate market share in difficult markets. Five years later, Telmax spun off RMD in a company called America Mobile. America Mobile started life with 80% market share of the Mexican mobile market. Oh, and it gets better. Now, American Mobile and Telmax were independent entities and free to develop their own business goals as they saw fit. And develop they did. Telmax went on a buying spree, backed by the spinoff of American Mobile and their two heavyweight partners. They bought operations in Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Paraguay, Brazil, Uruguay, Puerto Rico, and even a 13.4% stake in the recently bankrupt MCI in the U.S. Uh, but look out on the inside rail for that exquisite machine. In one of the most dominating performances since Secretariat's 1973 Belmont Stakes run, American Mobile, 10 years after its liberation, made a $23 billion bid for 60% of Telmax. In 2011, it gobbled up the other 40%. So in a mere 20 years, the $1.76 billion original purchase of the Mexican telephone system now was a $38.5 billion juggernaut. Could the Mexican government, or really any government for that matter, do what Carlos Slim did in the Mexican communication business? American Mobile now has a market cap of $48 billion and employs 192,000 people. That's a little different than the $1.76 billion price and 50,000 people employed when the government sold it. Does the same explosive growth await Pemex breakup? Unlikely. In the scale, but very likely, a similar result. So, Corey, where are we off to today? Well, I don't know what you want to call it. Missed opportunity, misplaced, or poorly executed strategy, rate of horribles, I don't know, Venezuela. I've spent a considerable bit of time here discussing Venezuela. We have new joiners to our listener group each week, so let's give the country a bit more time. 
Oil was discovered in the country in 1922, and soon after the government brought in the Americans to set up the oil industry and start producing. This turned to immense wealth. By 1950, Venezuela was the fourth wealthiest per capita nation in the world. From the 50s to the early 80s, the country enjoyed oil prosperity and spent lavishly on social programs, experienced positive net migration, and the country's workers were paid more than workers from any other nation in Latin America. The country wasn't without strife during this period. It's experienced corruption, arguably, since it broke from Spain. But high oil prices helped the country through the period until, of course, they crashed in the late 1980s. Afterwards, economic strife, and prior to Hugo Chavez's election in 1998, Venezuela's poverty rate had already risen to 66%. But of course, Chavez and continued strife leading to Venezuela's number one ranking in 2013 on the Global Misery Index, the same year as Chavez's death. So then, the Maduro presidency, which I've discussed at length in our podcast and often occupies the news, as Maduro has continued using Venezuela's oil, where he can, to fund his own personal life at the expense of his constituents. There's, of course, all the aspects of U.S. sanctions on PDVSA, consideration that essentially each government agency is illegitimate, sanctions and criminal cases against a plethora of officials, and the most recent arrest of the oil workers' union leader on charges of terrorism and improperly releasing confidential information. But I want to take a minute to illustrate a contrary view to our theme today and talk about the imagination, not the failure thereof, of the people in Venezuela. I'm a pretty handy person. I used to work real jobs. I worked in a parts house. I was a welder and machinist. And I built and rebuilt more engines than I can count. But what I haven't done is to steal my own gasoline. And that's what's happening now. And there's a Reuters article from November 19th that covers this. But essentially, citizens are tapping crude lines, taking crude and distilling gasoline in their backyards. <laughs> so, yes, this is extremely dangerous. And when faced with gasoline shortage crisis, it shows incredible imagination to accomplish this task. And meanwhile, at the officially sanctioned gasoline production locations, i.e. the refineries, I can't possibly begin to illustrate the ingenuity used to get these to produce products. Sure, they keep going down, but after years of mismanagement and non-maintenance, to get them to produce at all is a miracle. And finally, Pettibase is shipping, so they can't get anyone really to take their oil out. Instead, they'll use their own fleet to ship oil to ready buyers. The last time I checked, Pettibase only had control of some 24 vessels, and then only four of those had valid insurance and classification. And of course, the story of Venezuelan controlled ships rhymes with all other things PDVSA. Many are unseaworthy, crews are sparse because of non-payment, PDVSA can't get needed parts or pay to have work done, and there's a constant risk of vessel cargo seizure to satisfy creditors. Where's the imagination, you ask? Well, that's in changing the name of tankers, deepening ties with Russia and Iran. Jim and I talk often about influence, and having the influence of, especially the former, Growing in your backyard is certainly something you're concerned about if you're the United States. Otherwise, I think, especially if you're a citizen, the citizen of Venezuela, look around at all the missed opportunities kind of the way that the saying goes, water all around and not a drop to drink. You're living in the country with the world's largest crude reserves, 
and experienced operators there like Chevron aren't allowed to help you develop your resource. And when oil is produced, it's going to more suppression. Of all South America, Venezuela fits our theme the most. Oh, indeed. So I understand that you want to get off the beaten path? You know, that's absolutely right. We have the Caribbean webinar coming up on the 1st of December. It's got me thinking about other locales where the oil industry isn't as large as what we normally cover. In some of these places, the volume of crude or refined products production or demand may not be that great, but the economic impact of the oil industry is significant. The first country to come to mind in South America, Bolivia. I looked back at my notes for all of our podcasts as we started. I don't see one time where I would have uttered even the country's name. You know what? That's not fair. So we're here. Let's flesh this out. Bolivia is landlocked, home to about 11.6 million people. It has 37 official languages. Yes, I said that right. About 61% of the population speaks Spanish, which is an official language. But the remainder of the population speak one or more of the 36 indigenous languages. About 64% of the population is considered working age for what those of us in the industry, energy industry look to in regards to refined products demand. The country boasts three refineries that combine install a capacity of 63,000 barrels per day. Uh, one is actually only a 3,000 barrel per day refinery, but I don't want to leave anybody out. And from these refineries, Bolivia yields about 55 to 60,000 barrels per day of refined products. But remember what I mentioned earlier about the large working age population? Refined products consumption in the country is over 100,000 barrels per day. So Bolivia is a net importer of products, mostly from its neighbors, Argentina and Chile, but also from the United States. Bolivia also produces about 77,000 barrels per day of crude and NGLs and actually produces more gas than some of its other South American brethren. You know, think Colombia and Ecuador. And that's where we see some steam being built with how the energy industry fits into the country. Living energy is responsible for a full 8% of the country's GDP. And the crude oil and natural gas that the country exports accounts for more than half of the overall exports coming out of the country. A large share of this goes to Argentina. And recall that of the crude oil that Argentina produces, most is processed in country to meet local refined products demand. But I'll come back to this. So, where's the failure? Well, the 1980s brought an economic crisis. But after that cleared and energy reforms were passed in the 1990s, the economy grew. There was some poverty abatement, and the scene looked pretty good. And the early 2000s brought all sorts of issues. Racial tensions, political instability, and violent protests against plans to export natural gas from newly discovered fields. Huh. And it got worse. Evo Morales took office in 2006 and, and immediately nationalized the oil and gas industry. Like, he sent the military to the gas fields and gave foreign companies only six months to agree to a surrender all production for a predetermined service fee or get out of the country. Nice. Well, it was kind of okay during the first part of the early 20-teens with high oil prices, but after 2014's decline in oil prices... Bolivia began to experience a significant decline in economic growth rate. 
By 2015, Morales then began to attempt to attract foreign investment and, you know, promised not to undertake any more nationalization. There's more to the political story here, but let's just say that some election irregularities in last year's election ultimately resulted in Morales (coughs) winning. (coughs) Then uh, subsequently resigning and seeking asylum in Mexico, then later Argentina. But the failure I'm concerned with is this. Well, the oil and gas industry. The nationalization, and more recently the political crisis, has left the country out in the cold. About a year ago, Shell, Total, and Repsol really started to shut our operations, and with the COVID misery, haven't moved forward all that positively. Attack on this. While the country could have been engaged with outside experts in developing its resources, it wasn't. But coastal countries, Argentina and Brazil, have continued making discoveries and increasing production. And as we discussed many times, Argentina intends to develop its resources to the point of putting an additional 500,000 barrels per day of crude in the market. Brazil is selling off non-core assets to focus on increasing production and supplying its best client, China. With these actions, Bolivia missed significant opportunities and lost pricing power with two of its most important trade partners. Okay, that's all for me today. Jim, close us out. So hindsight is twenty twenty. But only if one's looking at it, fear, arrogance, and a closed mind are equally debilitating for corporations and governments as these qualities are for individuals. Next week, Corey and I will look at diesel demand in each geography and its use as an indicator of country health. Sounds fun. Thanks, Jim. You know, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that want to put 2020 behind them. Now, again, don't forget to sign up for the Caribbean Energy Outlook webinar on December 1st. And Jim and I will both be on a panel with our partner, Battlefin, on December 8th to discuss energy sector predictions for 2021. More details to come. Otherwise, if you're in a place that celebrates it, happy Thanksgiving. And if you're not, have a great week.